0: John chapter 7. Last week we looked at the first bit of John chapter 7 with uh, Jesus going up to Jerusalem for a a feast called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It was one of the key religious festivals in the Jewish calendar that they had. Um, John in his gospel focuses on the festivals in Jerusalem, unlike the other three gospels which focus more on Jesus' ministry in Galilee in the north of the country. um, John's gospel is focused on the south of the country in Judea, where Jerusalem was, the capital, the centre and here's one of these um, festivals that we're looking at. Um, the Festival of Booths was a time where they celebrated the harvest, and what would happen? Lots of pilgrims would come to Jerusalem. They would make these temporary temporary shelters, hence the name Feast of Booths, where these booths that they would live in for the period of the festival, it was seven days. Uh, those who actually lived in Jerusalem would make temporary shelters on their roofs of their homes, so they would go and live in them. So there'd be this sense it recognised their time in the wilderness when they were well, without homes before well, they came into the promised land that God had promised them, but it also uh, was there to remember a time of the harvest and God's provision for a people. So was, you've got to imagine Jerusalem with thousands and thousands and thousands of extra people coming in. Think of like some of our modern festivals. We have music festivals where thousands of people descend on one place. It's like they came to the city of Jerusalem and the population would have swelled many times its usual number. Jesus was going up there. His brothers were saying to him, who weren't believers at his time, his natural brothers, his half-brothers, said to him, well, why don't you go up there and make yourself known? Come on. You're doing all these crazy miracles. And Jesus says, no, I don't work by your timing. I work by my father's timing. I'm not going to do that. Um, but, eventually he, but then after, after they'd gone, he went up in secret. And last week we looked at how God's plan and timing works, and it's often different to our one. If you missed that, you can grab that on the website. So Jesus makes it to the festival where we're going to pick up in verse 14. And what we've seen in chapters 5, 6, and 7 is this level of rising opposition to Jesus. He's started this ministry that he's been called to by God. He's performed miracles. He's teaching. He's making an impact. And the opposition against him is ratcheting up slowly and slowly. And we know that it will ultimately end in the cross where he he is killed. Um, But we can see it slowly kind of getting more and more. So if you've got your Bible, John chapter 7... Verse 14, I'm going to the temple and began teaching. The Jews marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? How many would like that? Learning, having never studied, that would have really helped me at school, college and university. Okay, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me, because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ?' But we know where this man comes from and where the Christ appears. No one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowds muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am going, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered him, answered them, "Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or authorities believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, "Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does?" They replied, "Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arrives arises from Galilee." All right, let's go through this. Lots in there um, about Jesus. So, he has gone up to the feast, and he's actually now doing kind of what his brothers hinted at, he's just not doing it their way, and he starts teaching, which was not uncommon. He teaches in the courts, the outer courts of the temples, um, other rabbis would have done the same, crowds gather to listen to him um, and his teaching. And the way I want to go through this passage, first thing, I want to look at the reaction to Jesus' teaching, because the passage you can break up into a few blocks. There's two blocks of Jesus' teaching, which are followed by... Responses of the crowd, which are followed by um, reactions of the authorities. And when when Jesus teaches, when he proclaims, there are different reactions to him that we can see from the passage. The first reaction is that people are confused by him. They're confused by what he's saying. Some of them say, why is he in Jerusalem speaking openly anyway? Because they're trying to kill him. That just seems crazy. Why would you come here? when people are trying to arrest you and kill you. So that information was obviously public knowledge, or at least gossip knowledge. So they, what's he doing here? Uh, could they, um, could they, do, um, could they um, be trying to arrest him? Why has he come here? They were confused about his mission. He says things like, I'm going to go away soon. And they're like, What? Do you mean you're going to go away to the the dispersion, which means the Jews had left the area of Israel and gone to other parts of the Roman world? Are you going to go over there and teach them? When Jesus was was actually talking about his death, I'm going to go away. So there was confusion about that. He was saying, I was going to go to be with my Father in heaven. And they didn't quite get what he was talking about. Some were confused about his identity. They were like, is he a prophet? Others say, well, no, I think he's the Christ. But actually there was this confusion. Were they just saying, well, he does mighty works. Who is this guy? There were others who thought they knew. They displayed arrogance. They thought, well, we know exactly who this guy is and we've got him all locked up. They dismissed him. They said, this guy can't be the Messiah because we know about the Messiah and we know when the Messiah comes there will be a time of redemption was a popular belief and he would appear just before that. And they were saying they just, they'd written him off. They, they wrongly assumed they knew Jesus' lineage, his birthplace. They said he's from Galilee. Now, Galilee was in the north of the country. And basically, it was grim up north. Was their attitude? That was where the yokels lived. They were a little bit stupid, a bit slow, a bit backwards. That was that was a kind of attitude. And Jesus was from there, Galilee in the north. And they said, well, nothing good comes out of that area. We know that actually, if we read the Old Testament scriptures, he's got to be A from the line of David, and B is we born in Bethlehem, David's town, which is in the south. There's no way this guy could be the Messiah. You can see the irony of John in there, that we know, having read the Gospel, reading the other Gospels, that Jesus was from the line of David. Joseph was from the line of David, his adopted father, and he was born in Bethlehem. It just wasn't common knowledge. But they thought they, thought they had him locked up. We know, we, this guy can't be it. We can dismiss him. We can dismiss him. There were those who were threatened by him. The authorities, they felt insecure. They thought, this guy will stir up trouble. He will destabilise what we've got going. He will bring down the might of Rome on us. He will basically mess up the deal we've got here. So they felt threatened by him. They thought, we've got to deal with him. We've got to arrest him. We've got to kill him. We've got to take him out of the way. And that's why the temple guards were sent. They were like the temple sort of police. They were under the authority of the ruling kind of council. And they said, we can do that. We will deal with him. So they, they were, the response was they felt threatened by Jesus. And they wanted to um, deal with him. Even when uh, Nicodemus, one of the leaders that we've already met in chapter 3, he says, well, calm down, guys. Maybe if we're going to arrest him or we'll try and do something, maybe he needs to actually give an account. Let's actually listen to what he's got to say rather than just you know, dumping a death threat on him. And when, they, when he does that at the end of that section, what does the council do? They all turn on him. Are you from Galilee as well, they say? They lump him in. Are you one of those thick northerners those backward guys up there, they, they, they turn on one of their own because he dares to speak out and say, let's give this guy a fair hearing, which would have been the legal thing to do, but actually the, the, they were felt so threatened they wanted to attack him. And lastly, there were those who just actually accepted Jesus for who he was. They actually accepted him. You, 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 you see and the saying, some people actually accepted this is the Christ. They were processing what was going on. Actually, this is the one who we know who has come to Israel, the one who's been expected. So there was even a a positive response to Jesus in amongst all the negative. We've even seen, seen Nicodemus, and we know as we project forward that Nicodemus himself becomes a follower of Jesus. We don't know where he is quite there at this stage, but we know there are those who accepted Christ. And it's not too dissimilar today. When we talk about Jesus to the world, when we communicate Jesus, when we live out this life and say we're all about Jesus... That's what it is. That's what we're about as a church. We write it in our purpose statement. It's about Jesus. That's what we're doing. We get a varied response. We get people who are just confused about Jesus. They hear so many different things from so many different places. Everyone likes to kind of tag Jesus on. Jesus is my homeboy. You know, he's a good guy. He's a moral teacher. I want to be behind this bit about loving each other. We love love, so let's love everybody. But we'll ignore all the other bits. You know, and people have this kind of confused image of Jesus. You know, I, I read a book once that said that you know, if you talk to communists, Jesus is a communist. If you talk to capitalists, Jesus is a capitalist. If you talk to the oppressed, Jesus is a, a kind of a releaser, you know, a, a liberator. You know, everyone's got a confused image of Jesus. There are those who think they know him. They think they've got him sussed down. They think, well, you know, Jesus is a good teacher. We can just put him in that box, and then we can put him away, and we don't have to deal with him. We've we've got him pegged. He was just some guru from how many two thousand years ago. That kind of he came a cropper, but he said some good stuff. So we can just we've got him sussed. We can dismiss him. We can dismiss some of his claims. We can you know argue away his miracles. No, he didn't rise from the dead. That's ridiculous. All these kind of things. They think they know him. There are those who feel threatened by him because Jesus has some really quite stinging and pointed things to say. We can if you don't actually look at him too closely, he can come across as quite nice and fluffy you know, peace, love and all this sort of thing. But if you actually read what he said about life, about how you're to live, about eternity, about where you stand before God, about heaven and hell, he's got some pretty tough things to say and you can feel threatened because he'll speak into your life and he'll speak into the way you think and the way you act and you have to deal with that. And that can be a threatening thing that brings out insecurity. And of course then there are those who accept Jesus and choose to follow him and love him. And one thing I just kind of submit to us as a church is actually, where are you standing before Jesus? Do you have a clear, a, a kind of a clear picture of Jesus? Because if your picture of Jesus is not clear, it will not be um, communicated to others. There will be those around you who have an unclear picture of Jesus. They will either be confused about him or, or they'll, they'll have a kind of an arrogant, yeah, I know what he's like and I can dismiss him. I just, I'll put him over there. There are those who will be threatened. And um, I read a book recently which I'll just commend to you, which I found quite arresting a lot of ways. It's called Gagging Jesus by Fillmore. It's really short, so it's always good. It's got short chapters, but it's about Jesus. And the thing that I found interesting was he just basically took a bunch of things Jesus said and said, let's Jesus talk for himself, rather than, you know, we talk for him or we make an, uh, our, our kind of things up for him. And what I found is quite shocking, some of the things Jesus said that you can often gloss over or forget about. Some of the things he said about how we should live our lives, some of things he said about money. And family and sexuality and possessions and poverty and following him can be really kind of arresting when we dwell into them. When you drill out and think, what does that actually mean for my life? And just like the people here who are listening to Jesus teaching, there was a myriad of responses. We need to be people who have the right response to Jesus because um, we have the right image and the right view of him. And what I want to look at now is two things Jesus said about him which cut against the grain of pretty much lots of modern kind of views of him and will push us into a place of either accepting him or rejecting him as a follower. And he said two things in this passage which are shocking in the extreme if you actually, if they were true about him. If he was lying or making stuff up, we can dismiss it. But if they were true, they are huge and they have massive implications for our life. The first thing Jesus said is that he was the highest authority. He is the highest authority. He says... It says at the beginning of that passage that Jesus taught with such authority yet he'd never studied anywhere. And what they're referring to is it was normal for rabbis to go and teach Oh, sorry, learn from other rabbis. There were rabbinical centres where students would go and learn from a famous rabbi and they would literally sit at his feet and hear his teaching. We see this um, in the Apostle Paul. said he, he learnt at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the great teachers of the time. And that's what Paul said. One of his learning came from one of these rabbis. So it was normal. But Jesus had never done that. So he had never sat and learned, yet he taught with such supreme authority and they couldn't almost understand where he'd got it from. Um, and it, his followers had the same reaction. which is Peter and John in Acts, when they stood up to the council after Jesus' death and resurrection, the spirit had come and they stood up and they faced them down. And it said, the council were amazed that these guys were unschooled fishermen, yet they could stand up to them and speak with such authority and boldness about the things of God. So it's something that characterises Jesus' followers. But they were looking at Jesus and were like, this guy hasn't studied under a rabbi. He teaches. Even the way he taught was different because what they did in those days is when they taught to back up and give authority to what they were saying, they would quote someone else. Preachers do it nowadays, don't we? You quote a famous guy from the past you know, a book you've read or a preacher to kind of give authority to what you're saying. But Jesus never did that. Jesus didn't quote the other rabbi. Rabbi so-and-so over there said this, therefore I say this. So we're on the same line. We're agreeing, therefore you should live like this. Jesus just said, I tell you the truth. Truly I tell you. I say do this. And his authority just was, I'm telling you because I'm the one who has the authority to speak into your life. He claimed to have this great authority. It said that I, I speak what I've been given from my Father in heaven. What God has given to me, I just speak to you. He says, and also says, I and the Father are one. So actually, I'm just teaching as God to you. And he was just speaking out to that. And then he makes these interesting comments in verse 17, which says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching from, is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. What he's saying is, you've got to kind of get your head around it. He's saying, I'm the highest authority. And the only way you know I'm the highest authority is actually by doing what I say. I cannot appeal to any other authority because that way that would be higher. Does that make sense? If you're the highest authority, you can't appeal to anything else because you're the supreme authority. And he's basically saying, I'm the highest authority and the only way you know it is by doing what I say. And this principle we find throughout the Bible that actually to know whether you're following God and God is speaking to you, you have to go and do it. You can't appeal to anything higher because God is the highest one and He's speaking to you. Think about people like Noah. God came to Noah and said, What? Build an ark. Why? Going to flood the world. What did Noah do? Noah didn't wait till it was starting raining to build the ark. What did he do? He started building the ark. And his choice became self evident because when the rain came, he had an ark so he could go inside with all the animals and be safe. Think about Joshua when he got to Jericho. God said, You're going to take the city of Jericho. You need to march around it for six days. Seventh day, march around it seven times. Six of them in silence. Seven months, blow the trumpets. The walls will come down. You can take the city. What did Joshua do? Did he wait to take the city? No, he did what God had said. And then it happened. And God's authority and God's power became evident. What about the shepherds who were in the fields when the angels came? They said, "There is Christ the Lord has been born here. He is born in David's town, Bethlehem said, this will be a sign. You need to go and find the baby who will be wrapped in swaddling bands and laid in a manger. So what did the shepherds have to do? They had to go and find the sign. If they hadn't gone, they wouldn't have seen it. We have a phrase in modern day, we say seeing is believing, right? The Bible says believing is seeing. You have to believe, you have to put your faith and trust in God and then you see him work out. Because we can't appeal to any higher authority. Our obedience is a way of knowing that God is working. We have to be obedient people, respond to what God is saying, and then you see him work out. From my life, I mentioned last week, if you were here last week, and I spoke a bit about my story of getting this church going and everything else. God spoke to us years ago about coming and planning a church and on and on and on. And the only way I knew it would come out, and the only way I knew it was God, was by going. People said, how do you know it was God? Well, because I came and it happened. That's how it works. And Jesus is saying, I'm the highest authority. When I speak, it's what God's speaking. And the way you're going to know it is by doing it, by following it, by actually getting on with what I'm calling you to do. And then he goes on to give this example, which he's referring back to an incident from chapter 5, which... We, we've looked at, where he healed the guy at the, um, the pool, who'd been invalid for like 40 years, and he healed him and he said, get up, take your mat and walk and so this guy had been like lame, completely laid out for about 40 years, Jesus says get up, you're healed take up your mat and walk, and what was the response? Everyone was really stroppy that he was holding a mat, because <laughs> it was a Sabbath, because he's been completely healed, but you're holding your mat on the Sabbath, and we're really knocked about that and this clearly, however long this was later, a year later, this is still causing repercussions because Jesus had said, take your mat on the Sabbath. The fact that he'd healed the guy seemed to have been overlooked. And he says, look, you're, trying, you're getting really upset by this, this incident. You're, you're claiming the law with me, but you don't even know the law. And what he uses is a technical point um, to, to, to illustrate this. He says, on the eighth day, you sat, you, you, circum-, sorry guys, you circumcise the baby boy, don't you? That's what you do on the eighth day. Okay. Let's talk about circumcision. Okay? So he says, on the eighth day, he said, but what happens if the eighth day is a Sabbath? Because you can't do it on the Sabbath because you're not allowed to work. So what do you do? Do you circumcise the baby according to the law of Moses or do you honour the Sabbath, which is also the law of Moses? And what did they do? They circumcise a child to keep the law of Moses. And so he's saying, actually, within the law, there is precedence. Sometimes something supersedes the other. Because if the child is born and the eighth day is a Sabbath, you can't not circumcise them, because that's what the law says. So you've got this kind of precedent. He's saying, actually, you break the law yourself, because you circumcise on the Sabbath. But what you do is you kind of justify it, because one thing is greater than the other. He said, and so what I did was I healed a guy completely on the Sabbath, which supersedes carrying a mat, is what he's making this point. He says, I have the authority to interpret the law and actually do it in that way, and which is what you do anyway. And they're saying, he's saying, you circumcise a child, so you do one thing. The circumcision was a sign of the covenant, and it was basically a way of kind of making the child part of the community covenant of people. There was a sense of perfecting something in them that they came in saying, you perfect one part of the body with this act of circumcision. I perfected the whole body by healing this guy. And you still want to kill me. You don't even get it. He's saying, I'm the highest authority. I'm the one who can make decisions about the Sabbath, make decisions about the law. And they got angry with him as a result. And for us, we have to understand that Jesus is a sovereign authority. God is a sovereign authority. What he says goes. And that means what he says about anything goes. Whatever... Jesus says about anything, whatever the word of God says about anything is, is the right way. He decides right or wrong, culture doesn 't decide right or wrong, government doesn 't decide right or wrong. you know any person teacher doesn 't decide only God decides so if you 've got a Bible, can you pick it up, please? Because the Bible is if you 've got a phone with an app we 'll do this you know because that, that happens as well. I understand this. Put it above your head we 've done this beforehand we 'll do it again, but actually. The word of God is above me. Say, the word of God is above me. I don't judge it. It judges me. What it says goes. It is right. I am wrong. You can pay your Bible down now because you're starting to wilt, aren't you? (laughs) Who regrets bringing the study Bible to church today? (laughs) Should have had it on the phone, it's much lighter. But there is an exercise that would serve us to do daily that kind of thing to actually remind ourselves when Jesus speaks into a situation what he says is true and he's making this point with the people here I'm the highest authority. You can see why people felt insecure and wanted to kill him. But he's saying I can interpret the law I know what it is. The fact that I healed this guy and then told him to take his mat because making him whole was more important than observing a kind of a, a decision of you know we're not going to carry on mat on the Sabbath. The same way that you will circumcise a baby on the eighth day even though it's the Sabbath and you're meant to keep the Sabbath because something takes precedent over the other. I am the highest authority. I am the one who makes decisions. I'm the one who speaks in to these situations and you need to listen to me. The second thing he says is that he meets our need. So he is the highest authority, but he meets our need. Go to verse 37, famous verses. Famous and all the other ones you've got in this passage. But you've got to kind of cover it all. It says, on the last day of the feast, so the teaching can be split. He obviously said sometime halfway through the feast, seven days, he was teaching about this authority situation. And on the last day of the feast, he stood up and he made these statements. Now to understand what these statements kind of... The power behind them, we have to understand what happened on the seventh day of the feast. What would happen? Now, I've got I've, I've, the commentary told me this, so I'm assuming this is correct. This is what happened. The high priest would get a golden flagon and fill it with water from the port- pool of Siloam. Okay, so they would have a procession from the temple through Jerusalem to this pool. He would fill this golden flagon with water, he would then carry it back to the temple in this procession, holding this big flagon of water. As he entered the temple course, there'd be three trumpet blasts. Three times, a big, loud trumpet blast. The high priest would then process round the altar while the choir sang Psalms 113, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. So they'd be singing praises to God. When they reached the final Psalm, Psalm 118, the men who were there... Would wave willow and myrtle twigs tied with palm in their right hand. And that's their left hand. In their right hand. And in their left hand, they would have a citrus tree which is the sign of the ingather- gathered harvest. So they'd have kind of the, the, the branches, which is what they used to make the boost, and uh, fruit, which was the sign of the ingathering of harvest. And they would shout, all cry, Give thanks to the Lord, three times. So there's trumpets, singing, shouting. Praising crowds, so it was a pretty kind of loud and raucous, crazy affair. Then what would happen was the water would be offered to God at the time of the morning sacrifice. So they have the morning sacrifice, there would be um, the offering that they would burn, there would be a daily drink offering of wine, and then they would pour them both out before the Lord. <sighs> would just be poured out on the altar, on the steps. <sighs> So they'd have the sacrifice. There'd be the cheering, praising, and then there would be this pouring out of water that would run down the steps of the altar and out into the temple along with the wine. Okay, that would what would be happening. And on this day, so you can imagine, this is happening. There is this festival atmosphere. It's praising God for the provision of the harvest that has come in. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of pilgrims who have flocked to Jerusalem. There are people waving branches, waving fruit, all as a sign of the wonder of God. And what this is doing for them, it's hinting back to some Old Testament prophecies. You've got two times in Exodus where God fed the people of Israel from the rock, from the water, where Moses spoke to the, the rock and it gave water. And you see it in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 or something, and there's the water comes out. And then you've got the prophecy in Ezekiel where you see the water coming out of the temple. Flowing out and it's getting deeper and deeper as it comes out. So there are all these hints back to what's happened in the past, but this messianic age that is to come. So this water is coming out of the temple, We're talking about something of the messianic age. So all this is happening, all this is in people's minds. Old Testament, what's happening? Messiah's coming. Way, way and in the middle, Jesus stands up and he says he cried out. Now he would have had to have cried out because there was a lot of people making a lot of noise. And so he stands up and say kind of, where? probably somewhere a bit high, maybe got on some steps, I don't know. But he yells out in a loud voice, cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Imagine that, water is pouring down the steps of the temple. Ezekiel, the the prophecy of the water coming out of the temple, getting deeper and deeper, hints of a messianic age has come. Whoever believes in me As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus stands up and he proclaims it. And it says, John adds a little bit of commentary for us to help us. Now this is said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not been glorified. So, Jesus is talking about something that's to come. He's talking about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He's talking about something that is going to be given to his people after his subsequent death and resurrection. It had not happened yet at that point. Jesus is pointing ahead. But actually, as John is writing, it has happened. So he's writing after the event, but what's taking place is before the event. But this is coming. There's going to be something, a blessing to be enjoyed by his people that will come after his death and resurrection. And Jesus is the one who's going to supply this drink. And this drink will be the Holy Spirit, and it will be for whoever believes And if you've been paying attention as we've been going through John, who has Jesus already talked to about living water and water flowing out? Who's the person he's already spoken to about this? Do you remember chapter 4? It was the woman at the well. He's already spoken to one individual about this, this water. And not just one individual, a woman who was a Samaritan, who was the half-breed, funny pagan Diluted rubbish that were their neighbors that they really didn't like very much. But he'd already spoken to them about it and then happened. But now he's proclaiming it in the heart and the center of the people of God, the temple, and he's saying, The Spirit is coming and it's coming to all of you. And anyone who believes in me, again, look at the authority, believes in me, Jesus said, Not in believes in God, believe in me because he was God and he speaks. He said, if you come to me, you will. Receive the Spirit and you will kind of be satisfied. And what Jesus is pointing to is he is pointing to the deepest need of the human kind of condition. A relationship with God, a relationship with him. We know that our, go um, to the Bible, man was designed to, in the image of God to have a relationship with God and be with him forever. That was how we were designed, that's how we were built. Genesis 1 and 2, it got broken. Genesis 3, sin. Sin entered the world because of man's rebellion. Everything got shattered. Everything was broken. Everything was uh, corrupted. And since then, the story of the Bible is God's attempts and to bring man back to himself. And then Jesus comes and he's saying, I'm going to sort the problem out. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to deal with that need in your heart. I'm going to supply the, um, the water that you need. Anyone got thirsty yesterday? It was a touch warm, wasn't it? Apparently the hottest day of the year to date, yesterday, it was sweltering, it was lovely. First person to complain about the heat, by the way, we're just going to all jump on you, okay? We've had too much cold around here. So, it was warm, anyone get thirsty? Of course you did. You got thirsty, you had to take in the fluids or the kids keep, keep drinking, keep drinking. There's a lot. And he's saying there's that need when you get thirsty you need and Jesus is saying there's a need in the human condition that needs to be dealt with and he eases thirst. It's the problem of sin. Jesus died on the cross, dealt with sin completely bore the wrath of his father, rose victorious from the grave, and then offered us new life in him. And he says, come to me, come to me, come to me. Which is what he's saying here to his people. Come to me, and I will deal with that need. I will provide for you. I will quench that thirst. And like the woman at the well who said, you know, I'll have to keep coming back here. And he said, no, you won't. When you've got the living water, you won't need to keep coming back to the well every day to pour it, to drink. You'll be satisfied in God um, forever, and that spiritual thirst will be completely and utterly dealt with, and so as I kind of wrap this up, I just want to focus on this whole kind of thing about receiving the Spirit and what it means, because I'd love to pray for us it starts with us recognising who God is, who Jesus was, he was that one of highest authority he was the one who, who makes those kind of statements and says, I'm the one who can tell you what to do, I'm the one who can tell you how to live life, I'm the one who can say, it's only through me that you get to my Father I'm the only way to come to God. And the responses to him can be varied. People can reject him. People can be like, I'm not sure about this. People can feel threatened and insecure about him. But he boldly says, come to me and me alone. That's who I want you to come through. And he says three things about receiving the Spirit. First one is you've got to have a need. He said if anyone thirsts, so the implication there is you've got to be thirsty. If you you're not thirsty, or you don't think you're thirsty, then actually you've no need to come to get for a drink. You need to start with being thirsty. You have to recognise a need. There's got to be something in you that says, something's not right. Something needs to be dealt. with. Jesus says, come to me and I will deal with it. There's got to be a need. The second thing, there's got to be an element of faith. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me so you've got to recognise some of the things Jesus was saying about himself is he is, is he the Messiah the guy said no no he's just a prophet well we can't be the Messiah he can't be the Christ because he's come from Galilee you know he didn't even come from Bethlehem but we know there's got to be that element of faith this is the one you are the one with the words of eternal life where else can we go we've already had that one with Peter he says where can we go you're the guy we've got to stay with you you are God we're going to stay with you And then the last one is there is a receiving of that. It says, let him come to me and drink. There is a coming to Jesus. There is an element of actually I will set my stance. I will set my face. I will look towards Jesus and I will will go to him. I will push into him. I will go after him. He is the one who can satisfy me. I won't go anywhere else. I won't try and fill it with my own actions or my own thoughts or my own abilities or how I can wear it. I will come to him and him alone and I will give my heart and faith to him. And then the outworking of it, of that, there's the receiving of the spirit, which we get as believers. But interesting, what it says is, um, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. Imagine, Remember that temple from Ezekiel? The temple, the water came out of it, toward out, outside into the city and beyond, and so actually, we're to receive the Spirit as believers, but actually, who's it for primarily? It's, it's going to go out. You get it, but what do you do with it? You, you give it away. It goes out and affects other people. It's not just about you. It's not just a, a bless me club where Jesus does something nice to you and you're like, oh, isn't it good? It's actually, it's got to go out and affect others. And we see that through the book of Acts. When the Spirit comes, where it says, he said it's going to come after Jesus was glorified, the Spirit fell on the church in Acts. And what's the first thing that happens? They roll out of the room, looking like they're drunk, early in the morning. All these crowds come round because there's noise and there's this rushing wind and fire. What's going on? And Peter stands up and says, let me tell you all about this. 3,000 saved. Wow. And so on and so forth. You go through Acts. The Spirit fell on them. And they went out and preached the word of God boldly. So it was, a, it was an outworking of what happens. And we read, we, we studied Ephesians as a church a couple of years back, and it talks in Ephesians 5 about being filled with the Spirit regularly, having this kind of infilling. But the whole person is to go out and tell others, and minister to others, and love and care others. It's not just an insular thing for us. So what I want to do now is I want to take an opportunity to pray. The kids aren't going to be coming back in for a little while. I've deliberately tried to pull this one back so, not, so there's a moment to focus. If you're a parent here, they ain't coming back for a little while. So don't worry about it. When they do come back, you'll know about it because they'll be yelling and screaming and they'll, you know, pounding of feet. So we, we can just just take a moment. And what I want to do is I want us to just to pray for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus said, come to you if you are thirsty. And I'd love us to be men and women who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know what's going to happen, never do in these situations, do you? But I believe that's what Jesus has asked us to do. And so I just want to lead us through that time and see what happens and then we'll get into some sun worship and see what God does out of that. So can we do that? Amen. Stand up. Thank you. Sorry, that sounded a bit rude. Please stand up.